What a blessing it is to be with you this morning as we look at God's Word and celebrate together the fact that He is alive. It's why we gather weekly. It's why we gather on Sundays. It changed history. It's why we have the year that we do because it's after death. What a blessing it is that we are allowed to gather in this place and to proclaim His goodness. And I pray that that's exactly what happens today. I'm going to ask if you would to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There was a mild temptation this week as I was preparing to preach all 58 verses, but I do want some of you to return next week. And so we will attempt to only look at the first 11, but there are implications that you'll see in the rest of the chapter. Because the, the thought, the main idea, the aim is to remember that this, the resurrection, changes everything. It changes everything. I do believe a little background, a little context of 1 Corinthians is necessary because we, this isn't our current study. And we've been in Corinthians before, but I just want to remind you, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he had a, it wasn't even really a love-hate relationship. It was a very deep, deep, affectionate, loving relationship to people that were incredibly messed up. Um, in fact, there's, uh, there's many that have speculated uh, or just wondered why. Why does Paul love this church so much because he sticks with them. He's given them as many words as he's given any other church. Why is there so much love here? Well, he just keeps battling basically in this letter and in the second letter to some degree, but in this letter in particular for the unity of the church. The church had been struggling with disunity for many reasons. They've been rallying around the wrong things. They've had a false sense of love where they actually accepted those who were in open, blatant sin and believing that that kind of love or that kind of acceptance was actually to their credit. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be loving to sinners at all, but they were tolerating the sin. Also, in their worship practices, they were, there was a lot of jealousy going on on who had what gift and who was getting the most airtime. It reminded me of when I arrived at one of, uh, one of the churches I served several years ago within the first month. Um, the church at, at the time had had a practice of, of paying some musicians to play before I got there. They had had a practice of paying musicians to play on the worship team in the mornings. And, you know, it's basically because somebody at one point accepted Jesus in that kind of arrangement, they believed it to be a good approach to evangelism. And I was never a fan because I always believed the body needs to be leading the body. Well, it really came to a head about a week after, uh, say a week, about a month after me being there, I got a letter from the, the drummer, Steve, this is not an indication of, of well, it may be, but I don't think it's an indication of you. But he wrote me a letter and says, why can't you sit down and let somebody else have a little more time? And, uh, and so um, I beat him. No, I didn't actually at all. Um, but it was the last time he played the drums in the church. And, uh, but he wasn't a member, and I wasn't mad. It was just an indicator of this uh, lack of love, or at least this idea of jealousy of trying to get more time, more airplay. And so even though it's Corinthian deal, it's certainly not unique to our humanity. But they were struggling, even if you recall, even back into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
That's the chapter that we use most often when it comes to the Lord's table. Because Paul is reminding them what was handed down to him, what was taught him when it came to the Lord's Supper. The reason he brought it up is because they were ignoring one another as they were basically going after the elements quickly and feeding themselves and ignoring serving others. It was probably an oversight, but nonetheless, it showed their selfishness. In chapter 12, we start to deal with the spiritual gifts and different things like that. And and when it came to, there was a jealousy again on which gifts should be out front, whether it was tongues or prophecy, preaching, whatever. And that's when Paul talks about there's different parts of the body that brings, you know, there's many parts, but one body. Again, about unity. But there were all these different examples of why there was division or at least examples of division. And over and over again, Paul would remind them of the centrality of the gospel. Over and over again. Even in chapter 11, about the Lord's table, the centrality of Christ and the gospel. Chapter 12, about the centrality of the proclamation of the gospel. Through the use of all the various gifts that the Lord would have the church to use, regardless of what you believe about, whether it's sign gifts or whatever, that's not the point of this morning. But again, the humanity behind it of wanting to get out front, and it needs to be Christ out front. Of course, chapter 13, you probably know, because maybe some of you had it read in your weddings, this, the love chapter. And it's certainly appropriate to have in, in weddings. However, the context is it's a bit more of a rebuke. So I was faithful to the text in our wedding. I actually had the pastor rebuke Jan for not loving me well enough at that point. That's actually not at all what happened. It felt like more a prophetic rebuke of how I wouldn't love well and I needed to do better all my life. But it actually is a rebuke. It's basically you say that you love, but here's what love actually looks like. And every place that he says, love is this, love doesn't do this, love does do this, every single phrase actually is a bit of a, of a jab against the church and how they called it love, but it was actually the opposite. That's chapter 13. Then chapter 14, he comes back around again, though, to worship. But in this regard, in fact, if you, since you're in chapter 15, if you just look back and you see again, prophecy and tongues comes back to the forefront. Again, the use of more the vocal gifts, these speech gifts. But the problem was, is that regardless, again, of what we may believe about the use of these gifts, the fact was there was confusion going on because everyone was vying for some kind of publicity, And so where there was a tongue, Paul would say there needs to be an interpreter because there's no confusion in the gospel. There's no confusion when it comes to Christ. In fact, the the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's no confusion among them. It's very focused. It's very glorifying of who they are as one God. And yet the people were confusing and confounding worship by putting themselves out front. And again, Paul talks about the centrality of Christ the centrality of the gospel to bring unity. Now, as we come to chapter 15, the thing that I want to simply share with you is this, that yes, the gospel is central, but the resurrection is central to the gospel. In fact, in chapter 15, if you look at this, look at verse 17. We're not going to go there, but I just want you to look at it. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, without the resurrection, the death for sin is powerless. Powerless. You're still held by it. If there is no resurrection, whatever Christ did on the cross was for nothing. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
See, without the resurrection, to, to have death just in our physical lives here is really to produce a life of absolute hopelessness because there's no hope of something later because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then no human afterward will ever know the resurrection. So you're still in sin and you're going to be living your whole life in hopelessness. Look at verse 14. Go back up. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. See, without the resurrection, living religiously is pointless. And I just mean religiously in the most generic sense, not, not as a... Uh, you know, as opposed to relationship, you know, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. We've heard that probably growing up in youth groups and that kind of thing. No, just simply going after any kind of religious pursuits. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, and if that's not central to your religion, it is pointless. How's that for hope on an Easter Sunday morning? You're still dead in your sins. There is no point at all in living this world, this life, and anything that you try to do in this life that seeks something after life, complete, total waste of time. If the resurrection is not central to the gospel, what are we doing? Paul's implication here is, let me remind you of the resurrection and what that should be producing in you. And that is the challenge before us this morning is if we truly are here celebrating and remembering the resurrection and we know this is something we should be doing on a regular basis, what difference is it actually making? Because it should make all the difference in the world that Jesus Christ lives. Let's read our text. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Do you hear that phrase, of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared on, uh, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God. That is with me. Whether then it is I or they, whoever it is preaching, we preach, and so you believed." The resurrection changes everything. It changes the gospel message. I mean, look at the nature of what he says in verses 1 and 2. The belief in the fact that Jesus Christ saves sinful men has to be empowered by a living Christ. Otherwise, we will not hold on. 
So a lot of you grew up in the same basic kind of faith that I did, but some of you did not. So for instance, I grew up in a Baptist environment and we are Baptistic as a church, even though we are not affiliated with the denomination. But still a lot of us had this very similar experience as children where a lot of our memories of being saved meant once saved, always saved. And a lot of times that meant writing down a date in a family Bible. Or perhaps you were... I don't know if this was more of a Southern thing, but for whatever reason, it probably just came out of the 70s and 80s when there were so many, uh, I don't even know what it's called now, but the, uh, you, you would carve things into wood with this iron, I don't care, so don't go looking for it. I, I'm actually, this is one of those things that I can't remember that I'm actually going to sleep just fine, not remembering and not waking up in the middle of the night and scaring my wife. I remember some random tool name because that would really freak her out. But some people on tomato steaks would carve in or burn into wood the date. There's nothing in scripture that says, remember this date and then you're always saved. I'll never forget the time that I was disinvited from sharing in our denominational teaching in our state convention in Arkansas when I, would, I was doing training for uh, children's workers and teachers. And the material that they gave me to teach, the end of it said that be sure to tell the children if you ever doubt whether or not you're a Christian, then just look at the end of this pamphlet and look at the date and you'll remember that you're a Christian. And, and I had this affinity to counter that completely in front of several hundred leaders um, in the state convention. And that was a great time. And uh, so I figured it was probably gonna be a, 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 this one-off kind of a teaching moment. So I took advantage, full advantage of it. I wasn't mean, I just simply said, but guys, there's nothing scriptural actually about that. Scripture does speak about perseverance. Scripture does speak about fruit. Scripture does speak about the fact that because Jesus Christ is alive, that's the only real doctrinal point that I can hang on that I know for sure keeps me saved. See, you are once saved, always saved because Christ is alive. Now, we're not going to get into speculation of, well, if God can do anything, can he make a rock too big for himself to move? Or if Jesus actually did cease to live, then we would cease to be saved. It's a ridiculous proposition to make. But the fact is, we are kept saved because Jesus Christ lives in intercession as our priest, always because he is alive as that sacrifice that took care of our sin. And because that sacrifice was raised from the dead, there is no longer any sacrifice. Therefore, it is sufficient. What he did was sufficient to save me always from all of my sin forever. As my priest as well, in my stead, Jesus Christ is enough. The resurrection, because Jesus is alive, he causes me to hold fast. In which you now stand, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That doesn't mean we're not going to have seasons where we veer. I do believe it means that for the true believer, even if it's very late in the game, you'll come back. Somewhere in there will be a perseverance because the resurrected Christ has saved you and he keeps you. And he doesn't lose one that the Father has placed into his hand. The gospel is changed forever because Jesus is alive. Gospel meaning good news. There's no other good news if Jesus is dead. 
Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, there's more we could say, but we have to understand this, that as surely as the resurrection changes the gospel in that it causes us to hold fast because he's alive, he holds us, the resurrection, death for sin is then complete. It says that he died for sin according to the scriptures. There's a number of places we could go, but Isaiah 53, which we've quoted often last week, Friday, and then today, well, it's been referenced today in different ways. The suffering servant, the fact that he died, the fact that he was to suffer, this prophetic word of suffering for the iniquities, that the iniquity of us all was laid upon him. According to the scripture, Christ Jesus fulfilled that. The resurrection changes everything. It means that your sin is taken care of according to the prophetic word of God, but also the resurrection has occurred according to the prophecy of the word of God. Because later on in Isaiah 53, I think it's around verse 10, but also in Psalm 16, you have even David prophesying when he says, the Lord says to my Lord, do not abandon me to Sheol. Do not abandon me to this hole in the ground, to death. And Peter tells us very clearly in his preaching at Mars Hill at Pentecost, he says, brothers, I tell you, David is dead. David's not talking to himself in some weird self-conversation. It is Jesus that is alive. If the resurrection is true and accurate and according to the scriptures, then that means your sin has been covered forever sufficiently. And because he is alive and been raised from the dead, then that means it is not only sealed, but there is absolutely nothing that you could possibly add to what he's done. Some of you need to hear that this morning. First of all, some of you need to hear this from the standpoint of just being here and perhaps you're not a Christian. You need to hear that Christianity is incredibly unique in what it says about the gospel. What it says is, as opposed to every other religion, even those that might claim Christianity, every other religion on the face of the planet and throughout all of history says, here's the good news. Do the best you can and we'll see how God sees you in the end. All of them. You could look at Buddhism, it's ish, but it's in that vein. Islam, same thing. Depending on your take on Catholicism and how good of a Catholic you are, in many ways the same thing. Are you going through the, the stages? Are you going through the practices? If not, you could be in trouble. But Christianity makes this bold claim that because Jesus Christ died according to the scripture and was raised according to the scripture, then what possibly could you bring at all to add to it? Because he's alive, that means it's done, it's finished, it's complete, it's sufficient. And anything you try to add to it, guess what it does? It diminishes the significance of his life, of his death, of his burial, and of his resurrection. So for some of you who, like me, are overly introspective, you doubt way too much about your own salvation. And I'm sorry to tell you there's no silver bullet to really cause you to be healed of your chronic doubting. But simply, I'll tell you this. If you live according to what it looks like to be a Christian over time, 
The Spirit of God is faithful to testify to your spirit and give you confirmation over time that you are indeed His. But what I can tell you in the process is at least maybe do this. If you're one of these people who kind of, you know, I'll I'll put it this way. When Jan and I got married, I had no idea that I had any kind of temper at all. I really didn't. And it's not because she's like the hardest person in the world to live with. She's not. The thing was, I, I was a very, very competitive person. And what I didn't realize until I was married was how hard I was on me. And when you become one with someone, you end up treating them like you treat yourself. So as a pitcher and, and other ways in my competition, there was always a lot of self-talk that was going on. I didn't realize how terribly, and this isn't about, you know, loving yourself or anything. It's just simply saying that you will treat others the way that you do treat yourself and you'll view others the way that you view yourself. And when I began to pack away, that it's not about the strength of my faith. It's not about the strength or my ability to have said the right words. It is only and always about the strength of the object of my faith who is alive, who is Jesus Christ. And when I had to start throwing at myself in almost a competitive on the mound, what am I going to do with this batter kind of intensity to say, look, if you add anything to what he has done, you are diminishing the significance of it. And sometimes that reminder would shake loose the dross of all this stupid thinking I was going through, enough for me to think lucidly about what the scriptures say about a person who is saved forever. And maybe some of you, I'm not saying this is for everyone, but some of you need to do that. Some of you need to have that mental exercise where you go, I mean, what am I saying? I mean, if I'm saying that I could do something that undoes this, what am I saying about the power of the resurrection? Or if I really think that I can add something to what Christ has done, what am I saying about the significance of his perfect life? It wasn't really needed? Tell yourself truth. Stop listening to how you feel and see if it doesn't shake you up just enough to loosen what needs to be loosened, but to keep firm the things that biblically need to stay firm so that you know I am saved simply because I believe that Jesus is able to save and because he's alive, he's always able always. So then he is raised according to the scriptures. And then what happens? He begins to appear to people. So we have written evidence because, I mean, it's not like you're possibly referring to someone else. I mean, Jesus did raise Lazarus, but there was no indication that he might be the guy. It's not like there's a big, long history of people that have been raised from the dead to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures that said, this suffering servant is going to live again. It's a pretty small pool of people that that's pointing to. But on top of that, what does he do? He then appears to some 500 people. And Paul's saying some of them are still alive. Now, I get it. It's a couple thousand years ago. It's kind of hard for us to hang our hat on that kind of evidence. But what a gracious gift that even in the early church, we would be hard-pressed if going before in a court of law to have both written evidence, admissible, eyewitness testimony by hundreds, people would be hard-pressed to deny the veracity of what people are claiming. But still, we're left with an ancient text. Well, it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
last of all to me. See, with the resurrection, death in this life then is hopeful. He says that some are still alive. He says, but some have fallen asleep. I love that perspective of death for the Christian. Since the resurrection changes everything, it keeps us saved. It changes the message of the gospel because it means that there's a full out sufficiency and completeness to my sin being covered and it being covered forever because he's been raised from the dead. I also then get to understand there is hope for the life to come. For the Christian, when they die, they sleep. Now, again, I mean, I'm fully, full out human. There's many ways that I'm going to be put to sleep that I really don't want to. I don't want to go that route. There's, there's fire, there's drowning. Basically, anything that's not amazingly sudden and completely catastrophic, it's kind of like hail with a car that you really need to have covered and totaled by insurance. I mean, it, that's, that's probably not the best analogy, but, you know, I, I pray for hail the size of cantaloupes with cars I've had. God, I don't want this to just be pelted. I don't want it fixed. I want it impaled. I just, in fact, I'm pulling it out of the garage. Uh, there's, been, there's been a forecast. <laughs> sure. In my humanity, in my going to sleep, I want this thing to be very sudden, if anything. Peaceful something. But nonetheless, there is hope. Paul says, says elsewhere that we do not grieve as those with no hope because of the resurrection of Christ. We know that there will be life again because of the resurrection. It changes everything. But then as he wraps this up, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Do you remember the Damascus Road experience? He had been holding the cloak of Stephen at his stoning, absolutely complicit in his death. He took great pride in bringing those who were claiming Christianity when he was named Saul and bringing them before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He believed that was the pure and good and right thing to do. And then the Lord blinded him and then the Lord set him aside for about three years to teach him and to train him and to grow him. It was hard actually for him to convince others that he needed to be considered an apostle. It wasn't because he wanted the title, but it's because Jesus Christ post-resurrection and and post-ascension appeared to him, taught him, called him, which was essential for what it means to be an apostle. You had to have been called and taught by Christ. That's why he says, as one untimely born, the resurrection changes everything. Because if we have hope in this life, in the afterlife, then because of the resurrection, it radically changes how purposeful our life is now. So yes, it's good to know that you're saved and you're once saved and always saved because Jesus Christ is perpetual. He lives always. And within that, to know that your sin has been covered and is covered forever because he died for your sin after living perfectly and he also then was raised from the dead. So there's no sacrifice, there's no priest, there's no go-betweens. It's done. And it's then good to know, yes, whatever happens in this life, I know that because he has saved me and made me good with him, I'm going to be with him. But all of that then boils down to, but what about right now? The resurrection changes our purpose. It changes what we do right now. See, then, as opposed to if he's not alive, the resurrection 
if, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, to live religiously is completely pointless. But if he is raised from the dead, then to pursue him in this life is actually the chief end of man. To glorify God, to be satisfied in him forever. That that is the trajectory of my life. That is the point of my life. And you don't have to be a vocational pastor or preacher to know that if you have been saved and redeemed by the living Christ, it should change forever the reason you have to live. I mean, it changed Paul's course. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Think about what grace means to Paul in this situation. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking to shut it down. And Jesus shows, I like that, Suzanne. That was really cool. That was a powerful, she did a shutdown. I need to figure out how to do that. Kids, pay attention. We're going to learn sign language. And then when I do that, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. Paul's just walking along, still doing his mission. And Jesus interrupts it. It's, again, it's not as if he's paying off Paul for good effort, doing good things. By his hand, or at least, again, complicitly, people have died. All in the name of religion. Jesus Christ interrupts his course. That is grace. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't even looking for it. Believer, I encourage you, please remember, even if you grew up in a Christian home, okay, and there is grace in that, but some of you did not. I implore you, look at where Jesus Christ interrupted you like Paul. You were not looking for him and he interrupted your world. That is grace. You didn't deserve it, but he showed up. And then he began to teach you why he showed up. And it caused you to repent of sin and going after pleasure in the world. And you wanted to start pleasing the one who made you for a reason. The resurrection means living religiously is actually the point. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And I don't think he's necessarily boasting. Just he had to defend his apostleship more than anybody else because the others were already associated with who Christ was. But Paul had to keep trying to convince them and eventually was accepted. And what a grace it is for us that the resurrected, ascended Christ appeared to Paul because by the power of the Holy Spirit breathing out the scriptures, we have the complete canon of the Word of God. A good portion of the 27 New Testament books that gives us instruction on how to live and to give us the words of life that we have recorded by Christ and how we should function as a healthy local church. He says, though it was not I, it was the grace of God that is with me. And then he says, whether then it, is, it was I or they, he says, so we preach and so you believed. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, it changes your religious practice to be the most purposeful thing possible. See, the resurrection in the end should unify us as a church. Paul here is saying that they're getting their eyes off of the gospel, but then it culminates, you know, in, in all those previous chapters that we talked about, 11, 12, 13, 14, 
But then in chapter 15, he talks about the centrality, not just of the gospel, but the resurrection within the gospel. As if, and not even just as if, but to say, if you will rally around the truth of the resurrected Christ in your fellowship, it will dispel disunity. And I would say that's not even just within any one particular church. I would say that's within the larger people of faith together. Have we not seen massive amounts of division over the last few years, largely based on political affinities, even within the household of faith? Because here's what I know. When you don't focus on what actually changes your life, you will try to rally around a lesser kingdom. Because he has resurrected and been raised from the dead in order to secure for you a place in his kingdom. And that's not associated with colors or schemes, stars or stripes. It is to be the kingdom of God. And you know what? It's this letter that goes, in the second letter, he goes on and talks about being an ambassador taking the ministry of reconciliation, but that's not reconciling between men, between us and God, but it causes us to want to preach that peace to others. What is the culmination of this understanding in unity? He says, doesn't matter who did it, we preached and you believed. Isn't that the crescendo of rallying? Shouldn't that be our unifying point as a church? If we focus on the resurrection of Christ, that we serve a living Christ, it will change our worship. It will change what we argue over. It will change that we don't put a heavier weight on things that are dividing us than we should because nothing exceeds the power of the empty tomb. And if it's really going to infuse our purpose, no matter what our vocation is, but it's going to infuse our purpose, Paul seems to be saying that eventually this truth is so radical, it produces this power of you begin to speak and people are raised from the spiritual dead. What a stupid exchange. <laughs> what a foolish exchange. But Christ showed it when he raised Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Words. No mantra. No spell. No incantation. No elements. That's the power of the resurrection. When we are so riddled radically captured by the idea that Jesus Christ is alive and he's alive for us, you will eventually not be able to help yourself but to say, I have to speak this to someone else. Now, it may not be that you have the gift of evangelism and people just are always coming to the faith because of it, but I do know this, when we are gripped by the fact that Jesus truly is alive, it changes our speech. Because our speech is reflective of our purpose, what we are most passionate about. And I promise you, Jesus did not take his disciples through personality tests to gauge who was going to be most likely to share. I think our sporting events, I think our sporting teams, I think our passions, I think they kind of prove that you love something enough, it really doesn't matter what your personality is. When it changes you enough and it means enough to you, you're going to say it. 
I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip. I'm trying to help all of us, especially my priority, undoubtedly, is to the members who covenant and partner together at Milford Bible Church. And those of you who are visiting with us today, we love that you're here. And we would love to invite you to be part of who we are. In fact, I forgot to say this earlier, but we have a members class beginning. We do three weeks and that starts next Sunday. We'd love for you to come to that during the Sunday school hour, which normally would be at 11, but we're not doing that today. But that's starting next week. I would encourage you to come to that to learn more about who we are. But what I am saying is that if we don't make sure that the resurrection is in the middle of our gospel and that that is in the middle of our fellowship, then we are inviting in potential dissension and division. When it actually should be proclaiming what should be reconciling and drawing peace of those that God is redeeming to himself together. The living Christ preserves our belief. The living Christ brings purpose to our belief. No, it's not like some would say as a crutch when nothing else works. That's just what we lean on. But you know what? There's times I'm absolutely not ashamed to say, man, my spiritual, emotional, mental legs have been broken. Yes, I've leaned on Christ as a crutch, but not only. He's been a gurney to me. If I could say the word defibrillator correctly, he's been that. The living Christ preserves purposes, even empowers our belief. See, the way Paul lays it out here, guys, is one of the simplest articulations ever of the gospel. And so if you're here today and you don't know him, I ask you to hear this. Christ died. Christ died. But he died for sin, according to what the scripture said, which was the shedding of blood was necessary for people to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus Christ became that sacrifice. Is he that for you? Then he was buried. For real. He actually died. It wasn't just a coma. It wasn't some drug that made it appear as if he was dead. Jesus Christ, in all of his humanity, physically died. It was necessary for us to know him. Why? Because the resurrection was not a resuscitation. He was raised from the dead. Christ died. Christ buried. Christ rose. He was seen. He ascended. And then what happens? Christ is preached. And that's how Paul ends it. All I know is whoever did it, we preached, you believed. It doesn't matter who. I mean, you remember the previous chapters? Oh, who's got the gift of prophecy? Who's preaching? Who, who, who? It's Christ that changes lives. He died. He was buried. He rose. He was seen. And he is preached. How will you respond to the fact that Jesus is alive today? If it changes everything, what for you does that truth need to change right now? Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for your kindness to us in giving us, handing down through the years and preserving the word of God that would remind us that you are alive, that you are risen, risen indeed, and we are left 
to see that it has to change us. God, there are some believers that are here today that they are letting lesser things surface to the top and they have forgotten how much the resurrection should be changing all of their thinking. And they're striving for unity in their their pursuit of the proclamation of the gospel to be evangelistic in their lives. Lord, there are some here or watching online perhaps that don't know you. They've never realized that it is complete. It's not about them having to bring something to the table. It's not about them being just not good enough. No, because Jesus died, his death, the amount of blood that was shed was the same, whether a murderer, a liar. What he did, because he's alive, it's enough to save any that would come to him. Oh God, be, be gracious to our church that we would be us, in that city on a hill, that light that illumines Pike County, this region, with the hope of a resurrected Christ. Let it drive our religious practices, so to speak. And may we encourage one another with these truths and may it bring perspective, even hope in our worst of days. And may you be pleased and glorified with whatever the results are of this time together. We give you glory for it even now. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.